Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends? I'm just trying to make you money. My job is not just to entertain, but educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Can it really be true? Can we actually be happy about a rate hike that will, by nature, slow the economy, make business less likely to expand, and dampen job growth? Yet that's what happened today. Dow gaining 81 points, yet another record high. All right, S&P dipping 0.05%, but NASDAQ advancing 0.20% after the Fed gave us its long-expected quarter-point rate hike. So the answer is yes, but yes for a reason. The departing Fed chief, Janet Yellen, has followed the footsteps of her predecessor, telegraphing her actions months ahead of time. Her transparency, which I hope will continue under incoming chairman Jay Powell, is the reason why the market didn't get slugged when we got the hike. Now, there's a whole generation of investors out there who actually don't know the way these Fed meetings used to be back in the day when they were edge-of-your-seat occasions. Everything was cloaked in secrecy. We never knew what they were going to do. We never had any ability to figure out why the heck they did it beyond a boilerplate statement that was often just gobbledygook. That's not the case anymore. And it explains why we weren't poleaxed. But why does the market, or at least the Dow and the NASDAQ, actually seem to like the, enjoy a rate hike? A couple of reasons. First, it's not like so much that, that we like it, as it's, it, it, that investors realize rates can't stay down here forever. Even though there's not much wage inflation, we do have real estate inflation. Some people say we got a lot of stock market inflation. Rich people have plenty of free money. That's what they always say. It's free money. Actually, you have to pay for it, but they have free money to play with. And it's helping to put people to work, even as we would like all companies to do more hiring. Still, we're almost at full employment. And while we still don't have much wage inflation yet, it's easy to imagine it picking up. And it is in some industries like the housing business. And with the economy roaring, the Fed now needs to make sure that inflation doesn't rear its ugly head and erode the value of your assets, including your stocks, which is what inflation really does. It erodes your retirement money. It's important to go back to the Fed's dual mandate. Their job is to promote growth, but also fight inflation. Or to use a cliched sports analogy, the Fed has to skate to where the puck will be, which right now is a sense that inflation will come back because money is too cheap and Washington's throwing a settlement on the economic fire with his tax cut. We can't have it get too hot because inflation's ultimately bad for business and bad for retirement, bad for stocks. And since rate hikes are how the Fed combats inflation, well, these rate hikes are inevitable. In other words, we want a healthy economy, and we trust the Fed's judgment that we're healthy enough to handle higher interest rates. We like the economic report card that the Fed gave us, and it was a real good one. So buyers came in off the sidelines, but both because of the positive checkup, but also because this is the last big bad event before the end of the year, which means there's very little to worry about for the next couple of weeks, except for some sort of exogenous event. You always have to put that in like an asterisk. And that's what happened today. But, okay, that's history. The bigger question is, what's going to happen now? 
First, I would say that a quarter point rate hike from these very low levels won't really do much damage to either the economy or the stock market. But we get a bunch of these, though, in an unmeasured, quick fashion, and we will start to feel the pain. Although, again, Yellen gave you great comfort that the Fed will be wary of doing so. But then again, Yellen's going off into the sunset. We don't know what Jay Powell's going to do. Higher rates can kill the bull if they make bonds competitive with the return you get from stocks. We aren't there yet either. As my good friend, money manager Ken Fisher, reminded me in a roundtable we did today, the late uh, legendary John Templeton, Sir John Templeton, told the truth when he said, bull markets are born on pessimism, grown on skepticism, mature on optimism, and die on euphoria. Ken and I agree that we're currently in stage three. We're in optimism. We're optimistic about 2018. We're optimistic that the Fed won't kill the economy. Optimistic that inflation is under control. Optimistic that more jobs will be created, augmented by the tax bill. And I'm optimistic that stocks can keep running, even as there's still enough skepticism out there to fuel further advance as more money comes in off the sidelines. Now, I wish we were still in the skepticism phase because that would mean there's a lot more gain ahead of us. But we can still have a good run. And there's just not enough overt positivity out there to say that we're euphoric, at least when it comes to the stock market. Now, there's plenty of euphoria surrounding these cryptocurrencies. And I like what Janet Yellen said, which basically is that they're still small potatoes. I get the sense that when, not if, but when they become big potatoes, the Fed will have to have a more forceful policy. But right now, Yellen, even after repeated questioning, didn't seem to take the cryptocurrency bait. She just didn't think they're that important. Plus, it's not like everything is going well. We aren't creating enough highly skilled jobs in this country. And as Yellen told us, our productivity just isn't improving fast enough. I thought it was telling that the big job news today came from Apple, which awarded Finisar, a small fiber optics company, $390 million from its advanced manufacturing fund that CEO Tim Cook first outlined right here on this show. This investment will produce 500 new jobs at a shuttered manufacturing plant in Sherman, Texas. Apple will be buying Finisar's devices. That's a substantive claim to buying American. Without this injection of capital, I think Finisar would struggle versus foreign competitors. Good work by Apple. Meanwhile, despite aggressive deregulation of the financial sector, we still don't have enough lending. It's not, it's, lending's not growing, people, at the pace it should. It, it, it's actually doing quite poorly. Now, some of that's because long-term interest rates, which the Fed has little control over, simply haven't been rising. The banks want to pay you next to nothing for your deposits and then lend out your money at higher rates than what they can currently get. So they make that big spread. Now, if the Fed was to start selling its gigantic hoard of long-term bonds, putting them right in the market before it tightens again, we can get the kind of boost in long-term rates that would spur lending. Yellen has steadfastly not wanted to do this. Tim Geithner didn't want to do it. I'm telling you, this is a good idea. Uh, maybe soon to be Chairman Powell will embrace the idea. Higher long-term rates will give banks an incentive to write more loans, including to people who actually need the money. That said, we should always be on the lookout for euphoria because euphoria is actually dangerous. So let me tell you what to watch. Here's what you're going to be looking for. If you, see, if you see euphoria, this is when the show is going to change its tone. First, if we see a tremendous amount of insider selling and secondary stock offerings that get lapped up by the market, something that happened near the peak in 2000, we might be too euphoric. I'll pull the plug. If we see people trading houses like they did back in 2007, we might be too euphoric. I'll head out. If we see investors taking down a gigantic amount of margin debt in order to buy stocks, we might be too euphoric, and I'll be screaming at you. If we hear outrageous price targets for stocks and start bidding up the prices of companies without any earnings or even any revenues, well, you better believe we're too euphoric. And I'm going to tell you to get out. 
But none of that's happening now. We're simply in the zone. The zone where we feel pretty good. Ten years after the economy and the banking system were almost destroyed. So I think we remain in the optimism phase for now, not the euphoria phase, because there are too many people who remember the devastation and are staying in cash. They're being too conservative, as far as I can tell. Just like so many parent, uh, people of my parents' generation refused to keep their money in banks after the Great Depression. Lots of investors now fear losses more than they desire gains. They don't even care that we've got a fabulous worldwide economic expansion going on because they're too risk-averse. So am I giving you permission to party down with stocks? No way. We need to be careful not to own the stocks of companies that are doing poorly. We need to remain vigilant against euphoria. We should always be willing to take something off the table. No one ever got hurt taking a profit. Build up some cash on the sidelines. Something we continue to do for my charitable trust, as ActionLearnsPlus.com club members already know. And the bottom line, we need to be ready for something that's less predictable than the Fed under the terrific tenure of Janet Yellen. Thank you, Ms. Yellen. What can I say? You will be missed. John in New York. John! Jim, how are you? I am good. Uh, I'm Parker, how are you? UPS. I bought in at 113. The stock uh, skyrocketed to about 124 because of the tax bill. And it's been a free fall since. However, the stock's been moving sideways from 117 to 119. Analysts are expecting quarter four earnings to be about 167. The highest has been in a couple of years. Uh, earnings are coming out in February. Uh, dividends are coming out in February right. as well. Uh, UPS does benefit from the corporate tax bill right. from a 32 right. to a 20 percent. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, I, I mean, I can't have them the screw up another Christmas. Up? They cannot screw up another holiday season. And I don't know whether I can trust them. I like FedEx more. And one that, I, that I've been telling club members, members, you've seen Brad Jacobs on a bunch of times, XPO. I think XPO is better than UPS. All right. Thank you, Janet Yellen, for your transparency and your stewardship over the years. It's been a huge part of keeping the bull afloat. We are in this stage of optimism now, but home gamers, please remain vigilant. On Mad Tonight, cranes and convection ovens don't mix, and that's why tonight I'm reevaluating the 2016 split of Manitowoc to see how much value was created for shareholders when it broke up its business. Then, has Smuckers finally found a bottom that could stick like peanut butter sticks to jelly? Yeah, I'm talking Jif here. I'm taking a closer look. And why one former CEO wants to give companies a gold star, uh, well, for good behavior. I'm sitting down with former CEO of Sprint, Dan Hesse. Dan, to see how he's redefining what it means to be a winning company. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. At a moment when stocks have run dramatically, and we keep hearing so-called experts talk about how stretched valuations are getting, I think it's worth pointing out that when stocks go up, it's often a good reason. Like I told you last night, companies just aren't static. The best-run businesses don't stand still. They take their fate into their own hands and try to create shareholder value. In other words, it's not just that investors are willing to pay more for the same merchandise. It's that in many cases, that merchandise has gotten better. Sometimes you don't even need to create new value. You just need to unlock 
hidden value. Now, you know, I'm always talking about breakups. I love breakups because they can be a terrific way for companies to get the respect that they deserve. When you have two disparate businesses under the same roof, Wall Street just isn't great at evaluating it. They split them up and they try to get, and then they tend to get better valuations because it's more easy to understand. Meanwhile, you also end up with two leaner, more focused companies that can deliver stronger results over the long haul. So we're going to take a case and go over what it means. We're going to talk about a company called Manitowoc, which also looks like Manitowoc, but is pronounced the way I did. Symbol's MTW. It's the maker of all sorts of cranes used in construction that spun off its food service equipment business back in March of 2016. And the food division now goes by the name of WellBuilt. This was a textbook example of a company that actually deserved to be broken up. In fact, I recommended they should break themselves up and get rich carefully, my last book. Now, there's no universe where cranes and kitchen equipment belong under the same roof. I mean, no one ever walked into Manitowoc sales office and said, you know what? I need some heavy lifting machinery for a new construction project. Oh, and I'll also take a Frymaster. Cranes, like anything else, lever to construction are very much a boom and bust business. When the economy's strong, Manitowoc's crane sales, they explode higher. When the economy cools, what can I say? Their crane sales tend to fall off a cliff. <laughs> Food service, on the other hand, is more consistent. Uh, it, it's levered to a different cycle entirely. New restaurants and upgrading equipment at old restaurants. Think Bar San Miguel. At the time the breakup was announced, Manitowoc's crane division was suffering mightily and the food service side was accelerating which made the whole less attractive than the sum of its parts. Investors who wanted to bet on a beaten-down cyclical, well, they sure didn't want any food service exposure. They just wanted that cyclical. Other investors who wanted some sort of steady eddy food service play, well, they didn't want the risk that comes with betting on a smokestack stock. You know, one of those were like, it just didn't add up. And look, Manitowoc was not doing well. At the beginning of 2015, the company announced some major management changes right before the company reported a really ugly quarter. The house of pain. However, the new team also had something else to announce, the long-awaited breakup, with the company finally deciding to spin off its food service division, thanks in part to a major push from shareholder activists like Carl Icahn. The stock got a nice bounce in the news, but the bounce didn't last. See, the crane business was just too troubled, too hobbled, and Manitowoc continued to decline through the end of 2015. Remember, cranes are boom and bust. When the split was announced, the construction side of the business was experiencing double-digit sales declines. Remember those? So even though the food service business was actually pretty, doing pretty good, nobody on Wall Street wanted to touch it as long as it was joined at the hip to something so boom and bust. But since the breakup... Well, this thing's been a resounding success. Sure, it took Manitowoc some time to really get running. In 2015, the company's sales actually shrank by 19%. Operating income declined by more than 60%. Ouch! You don't turn around from that kind of weakness overnight. And last year was not that good for Manitowoc either. They had a weak quarter, and then they had another weak quarter. Even the first half of 2017 was pretty lousy. But when the company reported back in August, suddenly everything seemed to kick into high gear. Suddenly, Manitowoc saw its orders increase by 9% year over year, and its backlog grow by 25%. That's what we call an inflection point. They listen, Caterpillar had the same one. So did United Rentals. The business went from bad to good, thanks to an improving economy both here and around 
around the world. And we didn't have enough stocks that were like this. There's, you know, there's Caterpillar, and then there's uh, Caterpillar, and, uh, right, and Manitowoc. Remember, once Manitowoc spun off its food division that became well-built, the remaining crane company was as cyclical as it gets. Since August, the economy has been roaring, and thus the stock's been on fire. When Manitowoc reported again last month, the company delivered a monster top and bottom line beat, with its sales actually increasing by 14% year over year. First positive sales growth in ages. It reported $0.07 cents in earnings when Wall Street was looking for a loss. What's driving? Some of it has to do with the rebound in oil and gas. With crude back in the mid-50s, much more. Remember, that's, that's over 30% where it was last year at this time. Uh, there's much more demand for kinds of cranes used in oil exploration. Uh, some of it simply because the crane market in general has turned the corner thanks to the glorious worldwide economic expansion we're in the middle of. Remember, it's not just the U.S. that's doing well. It's the world. Orders are improving dramatically. Much more construction and infrastructure spending going all over the globe. You go If you go to the website, you can see they've got like, stuff they're everywhere. They're not just in, in a couple of cities in America. And some of it's plain old self-help, as Manitowoc has gotten aggressive about containing costs in order to get the most out of this economic expansion. By the way, I think it's got much more room to run here. It is levered to the worldwide global economy, which you know I think is doing well. Okay, how about that food service division? The company, uh, Wellbill. Remember, when this business started trading as an independent company, it was the desirable portion of Manitowoc. So when the artist now known as Wellbill well-built, began trading on its own, the stock just started running. Climbed from 1350 to 1850 in a matter of months. Just a horse right out of the gate. Clearly, there was a voracious appetite for this thing. Investors just didn't want to touch it while it was buried within a nailing cyclical. Since then, though... I know, things have been a little more choppy, and Wall Street's gotten a little more pessimistic about the restaurant industry. I think maybe too pessimistic. But well-built stock has continued working its way gradually higher. It's now 22 and change. That's up roughly 64% from where it was at the time of the spinoff. The company keeps delivering solid results. And we spoke to CEO Hubertus Muehlhauser about our, our restaurant-related fears last month. He told us that well-built's outgrowing the broader restaurant industry. And it makes sense. At a time when we do have too many restaurants, we're over-restauranted, many existing players are investing to upgrade their equipment so they can give diners a faster and better eating experience. Right now, Wellbuilt trades at 19 times 2019 earnings estimates, which have more reasonable valuation after spending so many years undervalued as part of Manitowoc. It's still so cheap that I even suggested at a recent deal economy conference as part of the street that it could be bought by Illinois Toolworks, which competes with them, or even by Berkshire Hathaway or another competitor, because it is such a compelling property. Hey, maybe they buy someone. So how have you done? This is the real, the gravelmon of the issue. How have you done if you've owned Manitowoc since the breakup? All right, so the stock was trading at $4.04 from the day of the spinoff. That's March of 2016. Remember, the company then did a one-for-four reverse split last month. So split adjusted, the stock has gone from $16 and change up to nearly 40 as of today. That's a monster 145% gain. At the same time, Wellbuilt's gone from 1350 to $22 and and change over the same period, 64% gain. All told, get this, if you had owned this sleepy little crane and food service fry master company that is Manitowoc at the time of the breakup and held on to both pieces, you got an 83% gain, S&P up 34%. And the S&P's been on fire. Here's the bottom line. Like I've been saying all along, 
Companies have their own unique characteristics, and the decisions made by management actually matter. It's not just a big basket of stocks. Even without the breakup, Manitowoc would be doing much better here, thanks to the pickup in the economy. But a great deal of this gigantic gain comes from the fact that with a stroke of a pen, Management broke up the old business and gave investors two smaller, much more appealing companies. I say three cheers for Manitowoc, and sometimes it really is that easy. I right, got much more Mad Money Head, including my take on one that you, you'll know. It's called J.M. Smucker. You, you, you bought their stuff, believe me. Stock is up over 10% in the past three months after a steady decline this year. So you got to ask, can it finally make you some smackers or smackos as they have in Italy? Then... But that's actually a dog food that I bought in Italy. I don't know if it's theirs. Then, remember uh, Dan Hesse, real tall guy, Sprint CEO? We loved him. Made us a ton of money. Well, now he's working to reward companies with a conscience. And is it time to brace yourself for an entertainment earthquake? I'm telling you the real scoop about Disney and Fox and what it means. So stick with Kramer. How can you tell when a stock that's been put through the meat grinder has finally found a bottom? That's the question I keep asking myself about the stock of J.M. Smucker, which is symbol SJM for you home gamers. It's the packaged food maker that's been on a real roller coaster ride of late. For years, the stock of Smucker was one of the hottest around. You know, it roared from $34 at the generational bottom in 2009 up to $157 in the middle of last year. But then it slammed headfirst into a retaining wall as the company's growth started slowing down and the food space rapidly fell out of favor with the Wall Street fashion show. Roughly five weeks ago, Smucker's stock briefly broke down below $100, but then it reversed again. Thanks in part to an earnings beat last month, the stock had reached 112 by Thanksgiving. And now it's back up to 118 So should we all jump on the Smucker's stock bandwagon? Not so fast, Kimasabi. Here's the problem. This is not Smucker's first attempted comeback since the stock sickening decline began over a year ago. Now, we've seen this thing try to turn around before, and every time the rebound has fizzled and the stock has ended up going still lower, breaking a lot of hearts. So what, if anything, makes this comeback different from all the others? Has Smucker's stock actually bottomed this time around, or are we merely looking at a very compelling head fake? Before we can answer that question, you got to get some context. First, what made the stock so hot for so many years? And second, why did everything fall apart in the summer of 2016? Okay, before the big breakdown, J.M. Smucker's stock roared higher as the company transformed itself. Thanks to a series of very smart acquisitions, Smucker went from being a maker of jams and jellies, my mom's favorite, to a powerhouse in a faster-growing category like coffee, think Folgers, and pet food where they snapped up a bunch of big brands in 2015, including Meow Mix, Kibbles and Bits, and Milk Boat. And for a while, the strength of these new businesses gave the stock some real life. But in August of 2016, the stock peaked at 157 bucks, and then tumbled all the way to 99 about five weeks ago. I mean, that's a 36% decline in just 15 months for what we thought is a staple, right? Consumer foods. We didn't think you'd go down like that. Smucker reported an ugly shortfall in August, which management blamed on food deflation, something that really slammed the whole industry. After several quarters of rapid double-digit sales growth, suddenly Smucker's delivered a 7% sales decline. Granted, the numbers in the previous year were bolstered by acquisitions, but that's still a pretty significant downturn, especially for something like this. I mean, this went from being one of the fastest-growing, if not the fastest-growing, packaged food company to yet another bad house in a real bad neighborhood. 
Plus, the decline seemed to be indiscriminate across the food, across food, coffee, and pet food. Uh, although human food was the worst performer, every single one of their lines, it seemed, broke down. It was rather, it, when I saw it, it kind of took my breath away. Now, smokers did manage to contain some of the damage by cutting costs, bolstering its margins, so there was only a little bit of earnings shrinkage. But that one quarter in August of last year cost the company its status as a growth stock. It was no longer a growth stock. Three months later, they posted a 7.9% sales decline. And while that shrank to a 4.8% decline when the company reported in February and a 1.3% when they reported in June, that's very, very different from the 20% plus sales growth Smucker was delivering before the slowdown. I mean, this thing, this was the darling, and it became the enemy of your capital. But what made the decline so devastating, though, was that there were so many false bottoms along the way. In November of last year, Smucker started bouncing, going from 122, okay, to a high in February of 143. Everything looked so good then. Nice gain. But by April, the stock was back to lows that it hadn't seen since the last of November, since, since November of 2016. Then in May, okay, it seemed to find a floor at 124, climbing to 134 in early June. A lot of people felt the worst is over. But within weeks, the stock had given up all of those gains. Then Smucker bounced from 114 to 122 in August. But it was making fresh lows again when the days, within days, thanks to a disappointing quarter. Can you believe this? Hope, hope, hope. Dashed, dashed, dashed. We caught another 103 to 111 bounce. Okay. Uh, from August to September. And by mid-October, the stock had erased the whole move. God, this thing. In short, every time that Smucker has seemed to get real traction in the past year and a half, you have been punished for getting too hopeful, and buyers have been annihilated. For example, when the company reported in June, management guided for a 1% sales increase in their 2018 fiscal year. Suddenly, it felt like the worst was over. In fact, the analysts at Jefferies got so excited, they upgraded the stock from a hold to buy. But then when Smucker reported again in late August, during the first quarter of their 2018 fiscal year, they missed big time. Sales were actually down 3.7%. And again, it's like coffee. Remember, we all thought this was a staple. We didn't think it could go down, but uh-uh, it got crushed. Consumer food's getting crushed, even as pet food was on the mend. And the earnings per share shrank by 19%. Ouch. Stock gave up 9.5% in a single session, annihilating anyone who bought it betting on a bottom right here. It seemed like the right thing to do. Stock was down so much. Now, you fast forward to early November, and the stock briefly drifted to below 100. Wow. Where it started bouncing again. It's worth noting that even after some major estimate cuts at that level, Smuckers was trading just 12 times next year's numbers. Remember, I told you it went from growth to value. Now, that may have been too cheap for the value guys to ignore. Then when Smucker reported on November 16, unbelievable. The results were fabulous. Terrific top and bottom line beat. Company's first year-over-year sales increased in ages. Coffee was flat, not down big. Consumer foods were down 5%, better than the 8% decline they've experiencing. Pet food was up 4%. International food service accelerated up 5%. Even better, on the conference call, it was really good call. Smucker's management sounded more upbeat than they have in ages. And these guys are like earnest guys, okay? The stock vaulted 9.5% on the news. That's this move. The mirror image, by the way, of the 9.5% decline back in August. And the analysts mostly raised their estimates. Suddenly, there's some enthusiasm bubbling for a company that's been left for dead. So is this the bottom for real, 
Or is it another fake out for a company that's all these fabulous brands that we've come to love? I don't, I, I don't, use, I don't, I don't use a lot of peanut butter, but if I had to, I would use Skippy for what it's worth. My executive producer is a Peter Pan person. She's wearing this really big black swan. I, I find it intimidating. Okay, anyway, the current, co- how you doing? The current comeback has some things going for it that the earlier rebounds didn't have. For one thing, it's lasted longer. Now it's up nearly 19% from the November lows, making this move stronger than any of the other failed bottoms. That's good news. Even if the run still only trades at 15 times next year's earnings. Other positive, Wall Street's gotten a lot less negative on the supermarket stocks. Have you noticed the pantry place starting to do a little better? Some of that's because of food deflation has gotten a little bit better, but a lot of it is simply because the whole industry isn't imploding like so many people expected. In other words, Smucker has a better backdrop than it did before. And look, the same thing goes for apparel and the supermarkets. Everything's doing a little better. But let me give you the bottom line. J.M. Smucker has burned investors so many times that as much as I want to say, go in the water, it's fine. I can't do it. I got to remain cautious. This is still a very much show-me story because of all of these disappointments that we keep seeing. And one good quarter does not necessarily make a turnaround. I'd like to see a second strong quarter in a row, even if I have to buy it right here, okay, before I recommend Smucker wholeheartedly. But if you want to dip your toe in it and start a small position right here, I'm going to give you my blessing. You know why? Because in the end, this is a very high-quality company run by a family that's historically generated better returns than the others in its sector. The family is good, hands-on, and I think it can ultimately reinvent itself all over again. Let's go to Thomas in Georgia. Thomas. Hey, Mr. Kramer. Thanks for taking my call. My pleasure. Um, I have a long-term position in Kroger. I bought it in stages, but before I could put on a full position, uh, it went above my basis, so I stopped buying. And then, of course, it got Amazon. Uh, on the bright side, I now have an opportunity to lower my basis and fill that position. So my question is, Given its advanced recent months, is it wise to uh, add that, uh, to my position? No, Thomas, you got to wait for it to come down because it's really been in a straight line from 20 to 26. I do think they're doing a lot of things that are right. But remember, it's not just Amazon's coming in. There's two German companies coming in. There's a lot of competition in the supermarket business. So we can't get too excited, or at least let's do this. Wait till it pulls back to 24. I mean, this thing has just been a rocket ship, and that's not going to be – that's going to prove to be incorrect. I want to go to Stephanie in Massachusetts. Stephanie. Booyah, Jim. How are you? I am doing really well. How about you? I'm doing great. Hey, listen, I have a question for you. America runs on Duncan, but how do you feel about the stock given the recent scandal with the state legislator taking bribes from a franchise owner? Well, you know, look, obviously that's bad news, but I've got to tell you, consistently, Duncan has done better than I thought. I have been far too critical of Duncan versus how well the stock has done. Uh, and I've got to tell you, I think that's going to just we're going to look at it as just a speed bump. And you got to just say, you know what? This is a good company with a good stock. And by the way, real good coffee. OK, with a name like Smuckers, well, maybe you need to be a little cautious. <laughs> I think it's still a show me story. But if you want to dip your toe in because the company is so well run, I'm going to give my blessing. And I'm going to invite Mark Smucker on the show because he's dynamite. Oh, much, why not? Much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with the former Sprint CEO, Dan Hesse. I have to get a ladder for him. What, what does he make of all the action in the telecom space? I'm going to ask him that, too. Then, could Wolverine and the Avengers be joining forces? I'm dissecting a Disney and Fox tie-up. 
Faber isn't the only one who can talk about this stuff. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with Kramer. There's something we need to address. Most of the time you see me on air, I'm talking to you as your investing coach. That means my job is to help you understand the market, identify stocks that can go higher. And from the perspective of a smart investor, what we care about more than anything is, is, well, what makes us money? Tax bill blows a giant hole in the deficit. Irrelevant right now. It makes a ton of stocks go higher. Wages are relatively stagnant. Sure, that's bad for everyone who works for a living, vast majority of people. But it's terrific for your portfolio because growth without inflation is great for stocks. Calls for patience, capitalists. However, we can't just pretend these other issues don't exist. We have real lives where we care about this stuff. Money's not the most important thing in the world. You know that. I know that. It's just the thing I know how to help you with. And while corporations have an obligation to make their shareholders money, a company's actions obviously affect a lot more than just investors. Matter workers, customers, neighbors. These won't matter. And that's why tonight I want to talk to Dan Hesse. He's the former CEO of Sprint, who's here on behalf of just Capital. It's a nonprofit research organization that produces rankings and data-driven tools to help show people which companies do the right thing most often. Yesterday, Just Capital and Forbes released their 2017 list of just companies, ranking the thousand largest businesses in America based on worker pay and treatment, customer respect, product quality, all the things that we neglect way too much when we have money. So without further ado, Mr. Hesse, welcome back to Mad Money. Good to see you, Dad. Good to see Thank you, Thank you so much. We miss you. We miss your integrity. Oh. We miss your character. We miss everything that you bring to corporate America, which is why it didn't shock me when you called me and said that you're doing just capital, that you are now trying to do something to make companies be more like how you think companies should be, which is all these great criteria. Tell me about just capital and how you arrived at these criteria and what really matters. Well, Just Capital did a survey of over 72,000 Americans to see what kind of behavior they wanted to see from the companies they buy products from, invest in, um, go to work for. And so what we've done at Just is taken those criteria, let the American people decide what Just behavior is, and then we've gone out and gotten hard facts and data and ranked companies from one to a thousand, basically the thousand largest companies, based upon how just they are, based upon those criteria. What the American people said was 96% of them wanted somebody to go provide them with this information, and well over 80% said they would, um, they would use it. Well, what, what I thought was amazing, no one's ever done this. No one's ever been comprehensive. Yeah. You know, we have Glassdoor, and they're terrific. And we get periodic polls which say that such and such companies most admired. Yep. This is different, isn't it? Yeah, this is more comprehensive. So actually, we use Glassdoor data. Okay. We use all sorts of data from other from other sources. So Glassdoor has really rich data with respect to how companies treat their employees, for example. So we use a variety of data sources, but this is very comprehensive. Now, what I thought was most interesting is a company that I revere, Intel, Mm -hmm. ranked number one. Brian Mm -hmm. Krasanich, always been an amazing company. So they check off on every one of the boxes? Yeah, and they're particularly good. And what you see in terms of the companies that have performed really well, they tend to have if you will, um, employee-centric and customer-centric cultures and focus a lot on those items. I was surprised to see so many technology companies, Texas mm-hmm. Instruments, then NVIDIA, Microsoft, IBM, Accenture, Cisco, Alpha. Where are the, where are the just kind of consumer product companies? I mean, you got Procter there, number 15, and Nike, 14. But why are all these tech companies so responsible in just capital? 
Well, I think the, um, uh, and, and part of it, I think, is keeping up with one another. They're competing for the same talent. Okay. They're competing for the same customers. So they are, um, I think that is a big piece of it. Well, okay. Because yeah. what led me to th the conclusion here is that there is something in the mad money way that I was talking at the beginning. Mm -hmm. These are, this is an interesting way to think about companies and how companies do well. Because yeah. these companies all tended to be fabulous performers. Yes. Um, and what we've seen from a financial performance point of view is that you have about a 33% higher return on equity of these companies that do good things. So about 24% return on equity over the last five years versus 16% for the, for the other thousand companies. While you were ranking, did you get any feel for what uh, people feel about the tax bill for corporations getting more money? I mean, is that something people want? Um, what, what we're seeing from the data is that we believe that um, if you will, the people out there will want to see what companies do with the, we'll call it the windfall, for lack of a better term, yes. of additional money from, yes. from taxes or repatriated cash. Right. They don't want to see companies buy back shares, increase dividends. In essence, if there's one overall theme in the data, it's that they believe companies are focused too much on just shareholders right. versus all the other stakeholders. They'll say shareholders, yes, important. Right but your employees are number one and your customers are number two. So are you know, the communities, the environment, um, you know, a lot of other stakeholders. So they will want to see companies take this money and invest in their employees and in some of these other areas. Well, that is only produces a better return on equity. I yeah. can't resist, uh, you're from, you came from Sprint. Uh, state of that industry, ATT, trying to buy Time Warner, we're worried about, you know, is T-Mobile going to be, it's all the same characters we used to talk about, uh, maybe some new ones, but where are we w with the phone companies? Would you let that Time Warner deal go through? Well, I don't want to um, opine right. on, on, that, okay. on that particular subject. I do think, though, from an antitrust perspective, um, the traditional industry lines are blurring. I mean, yeah. so you say Amazon, what industry are they in? Uh, and I think that, so I think that some of the criteria need to evolve with the times. All right, fair enough. And I do want, if we can get this list posted on the website, because these are companies that I admire because they are admired by your vast, rigorous, and empirical survey. Yeah. Congratulations. By the way, one thing I would add is with all of, with all of the um, differences politically, the results between Democrats and Republicans were amazingly similar there in this go. survey. One bit of unity in this country. Yeah. That's Dan Hesse, former CEO of Sprint and board member of Just Capital. I thought this was extraordinary, and I want to buy shares in a lot of these companies because Just Capital rated them well. Man, money's back after the break. It is time. It's time for the light. We're going to go around first one. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round. Kramer, I'm going to start with Dave in Florida. Dave. Hello, Mr. Kramer. Uh, Dave S. calling from the Florida Panhandle. How you doing, my friend? Man, the Golden Great 98. T. Hassey, I am with you. What's up? Hey, my stock is a maker of an electronics components company called uh, Chemic Corporation, KEM. They had a great earnings, or it looked like a great earnings uh, last quarter, and but the stock tumbled almost in half, and now it's trading sideways. I was wondering what your take is. That's a cheap stock. I mean, I, I think that's a cheap stock. Now, I don't have a... Uh... I don't have a catalyst, but I like it, and that's the kind of stock that would be working. I'm surprised it's this low. 
Let's go to Dominic in New York. Dominic. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. This is Dominic coming to you from Buffalo, New York. All right. What's up? Love your show. And Thank so you. is my brother, Bruno. Hey, I'm interested in your opinion on momentum holding. No, too dicey, too dicey. I prefer Finisar after Apple's uh, anointment. Anthony in New York. Anthony. Yeah, how are you, Jim? What? Listen, I'm doing listen. great. What's up? Snap Incorporated. No, I'm, not, I'm staying away from Snap. Charitable Trust owns Facebook. Happy with that. Let's go to John in California. John. Hey, good afternoon, Jim. Enjoy your show. Appreciate your advice. All right. My Thank question you. or concern is applied materials. I like I applied materials. I've got to tell you that Chapel Trust, we debated it, but we already have so many semiconductors, but it is good. Tony in New York. Tony. Baba Booey. Nice. Yeah, booyah. Good booyah right back at you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. My stock, Okta, O-K-T-A. We just had Sanjay Poonin on last night for VMware. We're not going to Okta. We're going to VM. Let's go to Bill in New York. Bill. Bill. This is Jill in New York. Okay. I'm calling. I, uh, Jimmy, I'd love to know about Teva Pharmaceuticals. No, you don't I'm need a- to know about Teva because I don't want you to touch it. I'd rather have Teva Sandals than Teva Pharmaceutical. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Scale. Gotta have scale. I remember when I first heard that term scale. It was when I started the street.com 22 years ago. I would meet with bankers, of course, begging for money. And they'd say, Jim, you aren't scaling fast enough. To which I'd reply, hey, I'm scaling as fast as I can. But every single banker would tell me, we're out of here without more scaling. But if you spend our money like crazy, if you go for huge scale, we'll give you every penny you want and then some. They were so pro-scale that by the end of these meetings, I thought they wanted me to develop psoriasis. Of course, looking back, they're right. If you don't have scale, if you don't have heft, if you aren't big enough, if you aren't dominant, then you won't win. Or worse, you might not even survive, as we saw with so many other dot-coms. Now, scaling can be both offensive and defensive. Tomorrow, we understand that Walt Disney will be buying a big chunk of the Fox empire, namely the studios, entertainment, Fox, national sports, uh, regional sports network, a lot of international stuff, too. The price? Well, don't ask. Disney's in the position that I was 22 years ago. It really doesn't matter how much they pay. They'll be getting huge scale. And with this deal, well, I'll tell you something, they need to scale badly. Why? Because as big as Disney is, the problem is that Apple, Facebook, Alphabet, Amazon, and even, yes, Netflix, if you you think about it, uh, there's that pesky fang thing again, might even have more scale, meaning they can get more consumer mind share worldwide, ultimately leading to more better programming and, yes, more ad dollars. Now, maybe I've learned to love being scaly, but I think this is a terrific deal because Disney will have a hammerlock on sports program with ESPN and Fox Regional Sports. That's perfect for the company's recent BAM tech acquisition. They can run right through it. The combined company will have a huge amount of must-see programming, giving them more bargaining power relative to smart TV purveyors like Amazon, Alphabet, Apple. They'll have all sorts of new theme park rides based on Fox properties. The deal is offensive in that Disney will not be left out. You can see the programming regardless of the device. So this whole cord-cutting conversation ends. 
Eyeballs are going to go somewhere, and Disney has to be wherever they go. But it's also defensive. I'm sure CEO Bob Iger is wondering, why the heck didn't the guys at Amazon or Alphabet decide to outbid them? There's not a lot of beachfront property out there. Fox's entertainment assets are a prime piece of real estate. Again, Disney had to pay up for it, but they didn't want that beachfront property going to the fangs. Now, this transaction also presents Disney with some new opportunities. If Bob Iger wants to, he can package ESPN and Fox Sports, the uh, regional networks, then put the combination up for sale or spin it off to shareholders. Right now, I think that would actually cause the stock to rally. Or Disney can be patient and build out BAM Tech into the sports version of Netflix or Facebook. Either way, Disney has bought itself time and boxed out its real enemies, the digital titans who can decide that they want to take Disney's business, meaning the business of getting you to watch them. Netflix and Amazon don't care whether you watch on TV or your phone or your computer. Apple doesn't really either. Now, Disney won't have to scare any of them. Stick with Craig. Hats off to Bob Lang from our Off the Chart segment yesterday. Caterpillar, one of the biggest gainers today. Remember, he told you you like the chart. Also, I am so glad the buyers are circling back to Adobe, one of my absolute favorite tech companies that's been kind of drifting down. Those kinds of stocks need to go back up in order for me to be a believer that tech can be the right place to be between here and your end, which I so much want to believe with Adobe, with Salesforce, with Red Hat, and with VMware. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.